0: Before we get going into your Hockey IQ podcast episode, I want to thank our sponsor, Rapid Shot. Rapid Shot is the smart shooting lane. Uh, It's like a batting cage for hockey players. Very cool. Tracks your shot in three ways accuracy, shot speed, and reaction time. Uh, Easy to use. Uh, Actually, I used it when I played and was growing up. Very easy. Simply scan your phone in, select your settings, and start shooting. Uh, You can see your stats on the app and online. You can check them out at rapidshot.com. A great small business. I actually grew up with one of the owner's sons and have played with all the family members by now, uh, just in local pickups here in Ohio. Very cool local business. Awesome product. I love it. I know quite a few NHLers have them in their homes. Uh, A lot of D1 programs have it at their rinks. So you have to check this out. Rapidshot.com. Check it out. Rapidshot. Thank you so much for sponsoring our podcast. On this episode of the Hockey IQ Podcast, we get a review of the Columbus Hockey Coaches Summit 2021. We'll start with myself, Greg Rivak, move on to Jack Hahn, and end on Kenny Rausch. So we'll talk angling, the importance of that, uh, NHL tactics recap for 2021 and trends going into the future, and end on Kenny Roush's awesome presentation on the five elements of an effective practice. So really excited to share this one. Again, if uh, you didn't get to get, if you didn't catch any of the presentations, I'll have a link in the summary description here, and you can go check those over on YouTube. Again, Columbus Hockey Coaches Summit 2021. Let's get into it. Welcome, everyone. My name is Greg Revak. You can find me on Twitter at Coach Revac. So let's get going. Angling for defense, for offense. So what is angling? Angling is coming in, not in a straight line, but rather on an arc towards a player trying to close them off close their space off uh there's this great graphic that you see on your screen from Mitch Brown uh showing the power of angling here Um, and this will go into the next stage of why I think it's a skill so Brian Rust here is taking an angle on Brown if he is successful he takes that puck and immediately turns on to offense if unsuccessful well not exactly what you want to have happen uh you're able to get your toe caps up ice in the direction that the other team's skating and recover very quickly. So it's a great tool to put in the toolkit uh, and become very, very skilled at this. So let's dive into why I think it's an important skill, an important thing. Um, And the common thing that you will hear at a rink is read and react, read and react. Uh, And while I think that's not the worst advice, I think there's a higher level to it. Cause if you're reading and then reacting, uh, you're at the pace of the game or a pace below the game. What we really want to be preaching to our players uh, is read and dictate. You know, players should have the ability and have the tools to dictate play, um, and have this proactive mindset rather than just waiting for something to happen and then reacting, proactively controlling the game, uh, dictating that game. So I think read and dictate is really where we want to go and less from read and react. While read and react is something you have to do sometimes, uh, for the most times, we can really get to the point where we can read and dictate on the game itself. So like I've alluded to before, angling is a skill. Uh, I think it's the most underrated skill in hockey. The the main reason why uh, is because players that take great angles and the angles that are provided uh, control the entirety of the game. They are dictating the terms of play. So if you've got a player that's extremely good at angling and understanding the angles, they shape the entire game, which all other players must play on and they can start to bend that game into their advantage. So super, super important skill. Uh, the most common one you'll see is F one on the four check. Um, and while that is important, I think the other important, other important factor here, I was thinking about the players away from the puck and, um, whether that be defense, could be in situations um, that are just not super clear. But if you watch the game closely, you start to understand that these are unbelievably valuable, unbelievably important, truly dictating, controlling the entirety of the game. So um, for me, I like to think of it as we want to be actively taking oppositions into bad spots, want to be actively taking away their lanes, And really allowing um, yourself or your players to be very, very hard to play against. If you're dictating controlling available space and you're continually putting players in compromising positions, so whether they get a pass and now they're in a bad spot or they just never get a pass, that is unbelievably difficult to play against and frustrates a lot of players, especially if they're not getting their puck touches Or if they are getting it, they're getting it immediately taken away or they don't really have options. So super, super important. Uh, When we back this up one element uh, to be effective at angling, there's ancillary skills. Uh, The big two are the ability to skate on arcs uh, and stick awareness. So with skating on arcs, um, it allows you to show players space um, and herd them like you're a sheep herder uh, very effective getting players to go places where you want them. Your skating and straight lines are super easy to get around. Um, and when you, this is done properly, you'll see players actually picking up speed into an opponent. Uh, the most common thing that I've seen and I've heard people talk about when we're talking angling, um, is for players that have weak outside edges, uh, guys that don't have, or girls that don't have a stronger outside edge, Uh, tend to struggle with taking quality angles and the ability to close off space effectively, uh, especially in this day and age where everything's uh, less about hard contact, and more about controlling space. So first thing I would say is if you have problems with players taking angles after you've worked on it, uh, it's most likely going to be skating and something you want to look at there. Second big element to angling is stick awareness. Uh, How do players use their stick to influence play? Uh, First off, being able to steer opponents into bad ice or taking away the desirable passing lanes. Um, And second is for contact and stripping away pucks, whether that be leading stick on puck um, or just jarring it loose with a little tick through the passing lane. So I I often take a player's stick uh, when we're doing this or someone's not doing it properly and asking them, you know, what is this stick, you know? and they go, oh, it's a hockey stick coach, ha, ha, ha. Well, realistically, maybe we should be thinking of this as four to six feet of space and quality real estate that the opposition has to worry about. If you're not leading stick on puck and you're just going for contact, you're giving up that quality real estate. You're giving up that tool that we have to play with. So those are the two big elements. Uh, first, I wanted to show a video because I think it's so powerful. to Understand that no matter your talent level, Uh, This is an important skill. Here's Wayne Gretzky. Everyone thinks of his on-the-puck play. But realistically, off the puck, he was a hound. He put sticks in passing lanes. Great stick. uh, Took great angles and closed players off. And and we're going to see this through these highlights that, yeah, he was great with all his wizardry skills, but he was also great off the puck, taking angles, controlling the game and controlling the space. Just absolute hockey genius. Excellent stuff there from Gretzky. Uh, all-time great for, for a reason. Uh, the next example I want to show is the classic that everyone can think of. If you think of an F1. You know, their role primarily is to take that play, split the ice in half, and force it onto one side where you can get a numerical advantage, take away the puck, et cetera. So I'm going to show Vinny Trocek of Team North America. Uh, we're going to focus on his arc skating and his stick detail. This is just an unbelievable masterclass in stick detail. Um, And his skating on an arc is also fantastic. We're gonna freeze frame this as we go along here. So as the clip starts, we're at the very bottom of the screen. Uh, We're looking at Vinny Trocek in white going against Sweden here in blue. So to start the clip, we see Trocek uh, has his stick along the wall Swedish defender, shoulder check to see that it's there, does not want to make that high-risk play, uh, exactly what Trocek wants him to do, and forcing that play to go D-to-D or to the other side or continue to go back towards their own net. So we can see here Trocek starts to get on his outside edge, very comfortable with it as he's skating on an arc. Uh, That play is gone where he wants it to. Uh, Important here is he's using his stick to shepherd that play up the ice. He sees where that player is holding the puck on Sweden, understands that likely the D-to-D pass is what he wants to do, and he's putting his stick in that lane to deter that. So as we go along and scrub a little bit, we can see that the Swedish defender starts opening up to make that play either to the middle or up the wall. Trotrek realizes this, and while he's been trailing his stick and deterring that D-to-D pass, now understands that that's no longer the concern We're going to watch him flip his stick. Now he's putting it in the middle, taking away that option. The Swedish defender realizes this is not the play, and now he's going to want to go back. Again, we can see Trocek. He's on his outside edges doing good arcs. Trocek again, phenomenal, phenomenal stick detail, taking away the middle, forcing this defender back where he doesn't want to go. Again, always has a great stick wherever the Swedish defenseman wants to go. His stick is there in the passing lane, shepherding what he really wants this play to go to. So now we can see the Swedish defenseman is kind of getting stuck. He's running out of space. He's getting close to the boards. The options are being coming very, very limited. Again, all because of one player, Vinuk Trocek, doing a great job with stick detail and closing slowly and showing him the space that he wants them to go into. Now we're going to see him lead stick on puck. Awesome, awesome. It's great to see Vinny Trocek get rewarded for this. So let's watch it in real time uh, and just notice how great he is at shepherding this play where he wants it, putting the stick in the passing lanes and taking away options. Wonderful, wonderful. And then gets rewarded with the goal at the end. Really should have been his the entire time. Awesome to see the hockey guy reward such great detail. So moving on, let's take an example of what a modern uh, approach to angling looks like. Uh, And this is going to be with defensemen skating forwards, cutting the playoff before it gets going. This is an opportunity for defensemen to be the aggressor. Uh, No longer are we seeing the classic back up between the dots, skate backwards, wait for the forwards to come to you. We're seeing defensemen read, understand that they have an opportunity to get a play early, nip it in the bud before it gets going and really dictate the play. So I'm gonna stop this a few times as we go along uh, and point out the key details. So we're, now we're gonna look at the medium right screen here. This defenseman is gonna come over. He's gonna see one, two, three, four, five sharks below the tops of the circles, really no support. Uh, this is a one-on-two effectively for Anaheim or for the Sharks, and a two-on-one as a defensive unit that they can become aggressive and nip this play in the bud before it gets going. Great stuff there. Now we're going to see it happen twice. We're going to see number 58, Latang in the bottom right hand of our screen. We're going to watch him come across, nip this play. Good stuff there. Again, defenseman, you can count. You can see you've got numbers. The other team does not. Great time to be aggressive. Skate forward. Angle players off. Lead stick on puck. Get big turnovers. Huge amount of contact is unnecessary. So let's watch 23. Bottom right-hand corner again. uh, Coming across the ice to make the play. Number three. Hall on Toronto, bottom left-hand corner, going to come across. Unbelievable play by Washington to get out of it, but still slows the play down enough to allow back pressure to get there. So what was probably going to be a three-on-two ended up being a two-on-two, maybe a two-on-three at best. So great way to manage risk, phenomenal. So we're going to watch skating forward here, angling to the boards once, And then twice as we see uh, Schultz come across. There's the first one. We can see skating forward, attacking, not just turning around, skating backwards and taking away the middle. We're going to actively go get this puck. So last one. Got to end on a goal here. Uh, Toronto does a great job. There are numbers for Buffalo. This players' head down. Could be put in a bad spot early. He tries to make a play, get a good tick on the stick on that puck, turn it over and go back the other direction. If we go back ever so slightly, we can see even, even if he does get beat in some way, we can see his toe caps right here are turned, skating up ice. He's going to be able to gap up, take away any kind of play. No big deal. While this used to be called a more aggressive and risky play, while it is aggressive, I would say this is the safest play this defenseman can make right here. Excellent, excellent stuff. So we can see how important this is that it's being used all over the ice in ways that we've seen it traditionally be used in ways that we're seeing more and more as the trends progress of how it's being used to effectively play defense. So that's the one way. And there's always a cat and mouse, a yin and a yang to these things, right? That one side takes a huge step forward, the other side, has to figure out and they take a step forward. Uh, And while I've seen a lot on the defensive side without the puck, I have yet to see much come out about creating issues for players that are trying to angle you. So what about the offense? How do we create issues for the people trying to angle us? And I think this is is the huge opportunity uh, that people have to really showcase uh, a skill to a player and really open their eyes. So, the basic concept is the ability to control the defender's skates. The person trying to angle you, try to control their skates. Uh, and the best way that you can do this is skating directly at players trying to angle you, right? The, their job is to slowly take you off and force you into, into a compromising position. And the way that they do that is they get on one side of you and push you to that side, to the boards, to the bad eyes, to an, you know, one of their teammates. So whatever that may be but you can get back at them and lock in their skates and not allow them to do that by skating directly at them. All you need then is one fake move. You got them beat. It's very, very difficult to contain if you're skating directly at a player. Now this isn't end all be all. If someone's got you gapped, they're skating backwards, you're skating forwards. Skating at them may not be the best move, um, but you're gonna see how this pins players into positions and allows manipulation of space. So video here, skating directly at players, uh, fast, slow, neutral zone, defensive zone, offensive zone. We're going to see all elements of how this can be an effective tactic. So let's watch Marner here. So this defenseman tries to pivot, skate backwards. He gets jammed by Marner going at him for a half second. Marner realizes that his feet are basically stuck in the ice, kicks it back outside, and this defenseman has to pivot again. Now Marner's got a step on him, probably two steps, and has the ability to make a genius level play. Awesome stuff there. So we can see it's an effective tactic, all three zones, all situations, and how you can place players in very compromising positions. But a specific area I want to talk about, um, especially you can talk about this with the players that are a little higher IQ, uh, is the concept of saving ice. Um, benefit of not just controlling the feet, but controlling their positioning and allowing space to be open for when you truly want it. Uh, So you're I call it saving ice because you're skating at a player, pinning into a position, saving open ice that you normally would have skated into for later. The most common mistake you'll see is players see open ice and they skate directly into it. Well that space then immediately is going to be cut off. You know, people see, oh open ice, I need to close this space be a defender there. Um, and you'll often see that from weaker players or just players that are at a lower level. They don't understand this concept yet. So you'll see them skating themselves into open ice, into bad positions rather than the ability to skating and controlling positioning, controlling feet. So I think the best way to do this is through an example of Tory Krug, absolutely phenomenal way of saving ice here. So we got end to end vision here. It's man-to-man coverage. Everyone's going to spread out and play some one-on-one hockey. So right here, Parise realizes he's not in a great position. He probably shouldn't have started from the middle of the ice uh, to play Krug. So at this point, he's just trying to turn around, skate backwards, angle Krug to one side of the ice. So he sees that Krug's going that direction. He's going to try to push him that same direction to our left. So what happens is Krug, rather than going to the open ice that's on our left side of the screen, uh, he's going to skate directly at Perise. Now, if you watch Perise's feet, his feet do not take any strides whatsoever uh, between the blue line and the red line. By that time, Krug's been building speed with these crossovers. He's been skating directly at Perise, holding Perise to that one side of the ice, right. You can see him. He's locked in on Parise. He's staring at Parise. He's skating at Parise. Parise still hasn't taken any strides. He still hasn't crossed his feet. You know, his feet are effectively stuck. He doesn't have many options. You know, he's playing risk control, thinking that whenever Krug makes a move, he'll be able to skate with him. But Krug disguises this perfectly, saves this ice on the left side of the screen rather than skating into it early by the time he knows he wants it, and he's locked Parise into a bad position, all he has to do is take two hard strides and be gone. Some stuff. Again, let's just watch number 11 here, Parise, and what this is doing to him. You can see all the tactics Krug is doing and how effective it is at creating open space for himself. He could have easily skated into that ice. He doesn't. He skates at Parise, saves it for when he wants it. Boom, when he knows he has Parise, he takes two hard strides, and he's there. Awesome, awesome stuff. Great tactic. Saving ice, understanding positioning. Uh, That's why Krug's one of the best defenders in the world. So how do we teach this? What does this look like? Uh, I want to show three drills uh, and two videos that I've taken. So starting with the neutral zone, uh, line the attackers, the no – shown in blue here as forwards and then got D which are the anglers uh, shown in red on the opposite side so you blow one whistle this goes off on both sides of the ice you get a lot of people uh, involved so once I draw this up I'm going to explain the attackers your job is to score defenders you're not allowed to skate backwards keep it super simple and go from there so here's what the video looks like after explaining that so keep in mind what we've been talking about Uh, saving ice particularly. Do we want to go down the wall? I want to pay close attention, pay very, very close attention to this player in white that's about to go here. See what he does. What he's going to do effectively is go down the wall, realize he's getting cut off and try to cut back to the middle by which time way too late. So with that, I blow it down bring the kids in and I show them the exact video I just showed you asking a simple question. You know, what does the defender want you to do? Everyone murmurs a little bit, uh, you know, and then someone finally mentions, Oh, Hey, go to the outside, keep them to the bad parts of the ice, put them into the wall. Okay. Very obvious things for us. So the next question being a very rhetorical one, should you do that? Obviously not. So you do this drill, they do it completely wrong. They're doing it very ineffectively. They're doing exactly what the defense wants from an offensive side of it. Now we need to show them the opportunities that are out there. So what we do is get the assistant coaches involved, showing them doing it their way where they skate into the open ice, getting excited. Oh, I see the open ice Go in there and how ineffective that is. Then we show What if we skated directly at the angling opponent? What does that do? They can see how effective it is. So we're showing the video. We're showing an example. We're giving some tactics, some ideas of how to make this happen. Now, as you saw with the drill, it's very cat and mouse. I'm not a big fan of putting stuff on the ice. uh, Very little, if anything, Uh, ever touches the ice when I'm out there. I think there's so much value to playing the cat and mouse, testing things out and allowing them to get the reps to truly understand these angles. So this is the video directly after we had that conversation uh, and see the difference between the two. So some are better than others, but you can see they're starting to get the idea of not getting too excited to go to one area of the ice. So next up in line is our hero here in white that we just keyed in on. See what he does differently. See how effective this is. I'm going to play this twice because you need to watch the kid in the white, and then you need to watch the person trying to angle him and what happens to his feet. Look at the difference. Unbelievable. Now this time, watch the defender's feet. Watch how he gets his feet jammed, and it makes it so easy for this player who struggled so much the last rep. A little stutter step, spring of the ice, and now, boom, he's in on that. And then lastly, we're going to finish up on the smallest kid we have on this ice session on offense, going against the largest kid we have on this ice. And watch how the small kid is able to get the advantage over the big kid. Super powerful tactic here. great learning all the way around. Awesome, awesome stuff. Again, cat and mouse setup. Wrap uh, rep it out. They start to understand, they start to get it. They start to understand what they need to do from a defensive standpoint. And then from an offensive standpoint, uh, it's just great learning both ways. Lastly, I want to finish up with two drills of how we can uh, take this to other, other spots on the ice. We've done the neutral zone. So let's take this into the offensive slash defensive zone. Uh, start with an attacker behind the net, their goal is to get outside the blue line. They take the puck. Their only rule is you got to go around the net. Uh, other than that, free free wheel. You can do whatever you want. Chip it, slow ups, low down, skate at open space, uh, skate at a player, whatever. So start usually one-on-one, uh, some basic angling. Just get, get a feel for it. Uh, but I think there's even an extra element that we can add is having one puck carrier with two defenders, two anglers. Uh, And then the second person can understand the defensive spacing that's required. Should it be close? Should they be further away? How can they read off their teammate? Is my teammate coming in too shallow? Is he coming in too high? Should I then position myself on the other side of that to understand he's giving this to the opponent? I need to be there because more than likely the opponent's going to go there. So really good cat and mouse game. I definitely would say get up to a one V two situation. Uh, and then lastly, small area games, uh, spot a puck to one side, that side becomes the offense to start. And then you've got defense on the other, they've got to angle Again, same rule, got to go around the net. Uh, but you can get this up from one-on-one to a two-on-two, three-on-three. And if you're crazy, go four on four, I think twos and threes are the best, uh, because you can get a good sort and you can see players angling off of the puck. And pushing players to bad spots on the ice. So, if they do get a puck, it's bad. So, spot a puck, play it out for 10, 15 seconds, continue that. Great, great stuff there. So, thank you for tuning in to my presentation on angling here. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Coach Revac. Follow me all over the web. I uh, do some writing for the coaches' site. Uh, then, myself and Dan will also do team and individual video analysis, whether it be games, technique done a lot of stuff on shooting this summer, uh, through COVID, uh, but also just talking with coaches on a lot of this stuff as well and being consultants. So really excited to help out the community. Glad you all tuned in for this. Really excited to share this great technique. Uh, make sure to let me know how it goes for your, your organization and your team. Take care.
1: So obviously I watch a lot of hockey, um, working with my clients, whether at the pro or, or minor hockey level. And, One of the things that I really um, found interesting this past year was how, you know, even as we're getting kind of up to speed on, on what hockey is all about at the pro level now is that it's still changing. And, um, you know, some of the, the, the tweaks that teams make are very subtle, but then, uh, it's a copycat league. So as soon as one team does it, another team does it. And then all of a sudden it becomes like a league wide trend. And so I've identified a few trends um that I think we can actually learn from, whether as fans or analysts or coaches or players, because every little change that happens at the at the NHL level, there's a bit of a butterfly effect where you know we don't notice it right away, but within three or four or five or ten years, the way that the game's played and the game that the, the way that the game is coached at the minor hockey level uh, changes drastically. So now we're talking about letting kids make more mistakes, play more of a possession style, uh, you know, using the width of the ice, uh, completing more passes. So those are things that happened at the NHL level a few years ago, and now it's trickling down. So what are some of the things that are happening in the NHL right now that are going to trickle down uh, a few years from now? at the level that either we play at or that we coach at. So that was the main question that I wanted to look at uh, today. So without further ado, let me actually get to the the first part of my presentation, which is D-zone coverage. Now, when I was in Toronto um, between 2017 and and 2020, there were some changes made in the D-zone coverage. And one of the first things that Sheldon Keefe did when he took over as head coach in 2019 is that he tweaked, uh, the D zone coverage a little bit. So instead of having that F2 cut the top, which is standing next to the wall and blocking that low to high pass, that F2 is now more in the middle of the ice and protecting the middle. And the thinking was, was that, um, well, first of all, the Islanders were using it very successfully with Barry trots, um, and, you know, they were able to kind of give up that low to high and then either block a shot or block a a slot pass and take away the most dangerous looks. So really, um, you know, the the Islanders still play this way. But uh, when we get to 2021 now is that the Leafs actually went back to playing a little bit more aggressive. And the whole idea now is we don't even want to let the first play happen. So whether you watch the Leafs, whether you watch uh, Carolina, whether you watch Tampa Bay, uh, they're very aggressively taking away that initial low to high pass. And the thinking is, is that if the other team is cycling in your zone, you want to pressure the play and you want to stop it as soon as possible. You don't want them to play the puck high and run a high cycle or a high three on two or, you know, some kind of a high movement. Uh, you, you just want to nip that in the bud and then cut the top right away. Now. Um, and I think this is something that teams have figured out is maybe if you're the Islanders, your, your roster's built a certain way, you can get away with protecting the middle and sitting back a little bit more and letting your teams play. But as you come up against more skilled teams, teams that activate their D's better uh, teams with more high end talent that can really use the high slot, you don't even want them to cycle the puck high. So you want to be able to stop the play either in the corner or at the half wall, and then hopefully uh, force a 50, 50, win the puck and then break out. Um, The second shift that I see at at the league level is uh, when, back when I was coaching in the AHL, I would say at least two thirds of the team's, in the AHL and the NHL played a one, two, two neutral zone for check, which means, uh, F one cuts the ice in half F two forces the puck wide, and then D one comes over and denies the entry with D two kind of mirroring that movement, right? Like, uh, like you see right here. And this works really well at forcing dump-ins and at, um, uh, killing plays at the line, especially if your D's are good movers. So now I would say, you know, with the success of the Islanders, uh, the success of Tampa, uh, both of these teams play a one, one, three and what a one, one, three does, um, that's subsequently been copied by Toronto. And then Montreal, when they made that coaching change from Claude Julian to Dominic Ducharme is, uh, the one, one, three is a little bit more passive, but it allows you to have three players back all the time so that you never give up an odd man rush. So in terms of um, uh, pressuring, it's not quite as good because you're not able to force the play to the boards as well with F2 being more central and then F3 being more of a kind of a far side safety. Right. But what this does is if you have a very dynamic one-on-one threat like a Connor McDavid or, Uh, a Nathan McKinnon or a Matt Barzell or an Austin Matthews, you can use a one, one, three and buy yourself a little time. And and essentially this is what, what it does. So in terms of just killing the play at the line, it's not as good, but if you're against uh, a team that really plays a possession style that really uses that change of side pass in the neutral zone, or a team that has a lot of kind of unique offensive talents, then a one-one-three buys you a little time, and at least it allows you to get four or even maybe all five players back in the play, and then it's way harder to score on you. So really, the one-one-three—it's uh, you know we we think of the game as being faster and more aggressive all the time, but really, the one-one-three is almost like we're taking a step back and being less aggressive, so that we can buy ourselves a little time, and we can survive that initial rush when uh, a lot of the chances happen. Uh, the third area is, you know, once again, I think the Islanders—they're they're really interesting team because, because they're really at the forefront a lot of, um, of a lot of these tactical uh, changes or or these tactical nuances. But the thing with their ozone forecheck is, they'll play a one-two-two two, like almost every single other team. So once again, uh, F1 is on the puck; he's trying to force the play to one side. Uh, F2 is covering the rim. Uh, F3 is covering the other side and then the D's, uh, they're staying back and one of them may pinch. So this is a really typical setup. Uh, you'll see Toronto do it. You'll see Montreal do it. Ottawa, um, you know, Tampa will do it at times. Carolina will do it. Uh, Calgary will do it. So really most teams in the league, like that's how they forecheck in the offensive zone. But the really interesting thing with, um, the Islanders is, not only do they have this one, two, two down pat, but they also will shift to a two, one, two. For me, like I'm still trying to figure out what their trigger points are like what you know, what's going to happen that's going to make the players decide to switch from a one, two, two to two, one, two. Because you know, unless you're in the room, unless you're in the meeting, you don't necessarily know the trigger point, but all you see is that they're able to shift very fluently from a, a one, two, two to 212 like this. And the you know we always talk about the importance of being deceptive or being manipulative when you have the puck. And actually the the cool thing with uh, the Islanders is that they're, they're really deceptive without the puck because as a D if you read a 122 two, you can reverse to your partner, you can go D to D, you can maybe beat F1 and hit the middle, but then that same read, if they actually come in with a 2 you're running right into pressure. So if you're reversing the puck, um, that second Islanders forechecker is going to be right on your partner. If you try to beat F1 and gain the middle, uh, that high player is going to be in your face. So wh- what happens is, is that the Islanders are really tough to play against because uh, they have two looks, not just one. So you can never take it for granted where the forecheckers are. You, you always got to be looking up and scanning the ice and, and kind of talking things out as you go, which is really difficult to do if you have the puck and there's pressure on you. So that's something I think a lot of teams are going to embrace in the coming years where it's going to involve more teaching. It's going to involve maybe more deliberate practice. But I think you're going to start seeing teams throwing two different uh, for check formations in open play. Right. And, and that's going to be something, uh, I think that we should watch out for and something that's going to be really, uh, bo- it, both, is going to be mo- more demanding for the players, but also for the coaches. Cause now you got to teach more in the same amount of time and you got to implement two systems or, or two schemes, uh, when normally you're only implementing one. So I'll be curious to see how that shakes out, uh, in terms of offensive transition, um, you know, Colorado and Florida are the two best teams in the league in terms of creating chances and shots off the rush. Uh Carolina does it differently. They're more of a dump and chase team, but they play really fast. So really now we see kind of two different mentalities when it comes to transition play. The first one is very possession-oriented. So we, we talked about this a lot when, when I was in Toronto, and you know, Colorado is implementing this better than anyone. So really what you're looking for is the puck usually starts on the wall. So you're trying to get off the wall with a good carry using whether, you know, it's a cutback or crossovers or change of speed. You want four players in the rush. So you have F1, F2, F3, and then D2 is going to be jumping through the middle. Uh, you're going to be looking to change sides with a pass as much as you can to force the neutral zone forecheck check to adjust and, and create some seams. Uh, you're looking for your elite players like Nate McKinnon or, um, you know, your, your Matt Barzell's your Matthews, you're looking for them to be an option, the middle and, and really creating middle speed. And then finally, once you're able to hit that middle speed, then you have a wide player who's able to create a two-on-one on the entry. And once you create a two-on-one on the entry, it's a controlled entry. You have space, you have speed, uh, you can get to the net right away. So really this is what Colorado or Tampa or Toronto, that's what they're trying to do. Uh, a different approach is Carolina. So Carolina, uh, essentially they want to beat you with speed on one half of the ice. So if you look on the diagram here, F1, F2 and F3, they're all pushing up ice. And then the D's are looking to play the puck North to F1 really quickly for kind of a, a two on one entry on the strong side. If that play is not available, then he's stretching to F3. And then maybe D2 is also an option in the middle. But really, this one's a lot more straightforward. You're looking to play the puck north. You're using uh, passing instead of more of carries or deception. You're not changing sides as often. And you'll see Carolina and Vegas do it. These are probably the best two teams at doing that. And, And the beauty of what Florida's been able to do this year obviously, they went down in the first round to Tampa. But for me, they were one of the more interesting teams to watch because they kind of have a hybrid of both um, that possession buildup, but also that that quick playing buildup. So if you go back here, we see the change of sides. We see, you know, trying to fit multiple passes within a rush, and we'll see that in Florida as well. But the difference is Florida is stretching all their three forwards up ice very quickly, but also they're totally unafraid of having the D's jump into the play. So really this is probably the most aggressive neutral zone rush scheme I've ever seen uh, as long as I've analyzed the NHL. It, it looks a bit like what the Oilers used to do, though Hawkins in the eighties uh, you know, when Gretzky and Curry and all those guys played Paul Coffey uh, it was way less structured, but essentially this is what they were trying to do. Pushing the forwards up ice and having these carry and then create options. And this is probably the most demanding type of transition just because you got to be able to skate. You got to be able to make passes. You got to be able to catch passes. You got to be able to play East, West, North, South. So um, it'll be interesting to see how Florida is able to build on this, uh, frankly, very promising framework uh, next season. Uh, But, but I think, you know, if if you want to study the future of offensive play, you got to watch Florida right now. And then finally, in terms of ozone play at five on five, uh, Again, Florida is a very good team to study, but also Tampa and New York uh, are really interesting as well. And this is something that Tampa has been doing for a while. They like to get their F three really high, almost between the D's or even a little bit higher, and then run that two three funnel. So you're always getting this exchange uh, or this rotation between the three forwards. They're they're controlling the middle of the ice without stopping at the net. And then the D's are active. They're free to go down the wall or get off the wall and walk to the middle. And and it's just, it's a very fluid way of playing. And I'm I'm sure we've all seen how they play, given the fact that they just won the last two cups. Uh, A slightly more uh, conservative way of of doing it is uh, what Florida and what New York do um, in the ozone, which is they'll have one or even two players at the net. But once again, that third forward is going to come up and you're playing again in kind of a two, three with the D's pretty active, trying to hit, um, hit the middle here on a high three versus two. So in terms of, uh, my diagrams, that's it. Uh, now, you know, we have a few minutes for questions or whatever, uh, whatever you guys want to ask me.
0: Yes. Who's in charge of on-ice play during practice?
1: So
2: that's a question I want to ask to the group. Um, The coach sets up environments, but the players should be in charge of the actual decision-making. Beautiful, right? It's a little bit of a give and take. It's not just one. Everyone thinks, well, coach is in charge because he sets everything up. But if the players don't have some ownership to it, it really doesn't matter what practice looks like. So we're we're talking about what's – you know, we want player development to look like, and then we're going to ask this is who's in charge of play on ice play during a game. Um, he says there? the players. He, he's, he's right here with us. Oh, okay. So he says the player, why, why the player, Greg?
0: Yeah. He, he, they're the ones playing as John Cooper says he's just going out there to chew gum.
2: You know, it's funny. I actually reference the John Cooper quote all the time. It was uh, not this past playoff of the year before. In a post game, they asked him about his game plan and stuff. He's like, "Yeah, we have a game plan. We go into the game with some things in mind, but once the players go over the boards, it's it's up to them. I can't do anything more, right? So, so many of us youth coaches think we're in charge because you know we change the lines, we put pairs together, we put lines together and stuff. But the reality is, you know, once they're over the boards, it's got to be up to the players. And if we want them to." develop and become better players, it has to be up to them. You have to create that player centered environment and take yourself out of the mix as much as possible because it's not about us as coaches. It's about the kids, right? We want the kids to to get better. Uh, what's the purpose of practice? Why do we practice? What like why as a coach do you practice? I'd probably say uh, to make it game like to make it game like okay. and, and allow them to uh um make decisions because that's what they're going to see in a game. Yeah. So you're, you're jumping ahead on me for about five minutes here. Or so, but you know, what I want you to do is, is take a real like deep look at why do you practice? Like, why do you practice? Why do you, what's the purpose of practice? Get players ready for games, get players ready for games. Do we really believe that?
0: Player confidence, building player confidence so they're ready for the games and the situations that are going to present themselves. Okay. What if I
2: asked you, why would you practice juggling? Still, down, still, on, still on Danny. Why, why would you practice juggling? Hand-eye
0: coordination. Hand-eye coordination. Go through the movement patterns that you're going to have to do. It's, it's pretty, right. pretty sad. All
2: right. So, but my point being is, do you practice juggling to get ready for a juggling contest? So the, I'm, I'm looking for a, a simple phrase of why, what's the purpose of practicing
0: uh, to improve. That's, that's an to, answer we have here
2: to improve, right? So the, the real reason the purpose of practice is to make your players better, right? You, you practice juggling to get better at juggling. You don't practice juggling to get ready for the juggling contest. You don't, you know, you practice whatever it is to get better at it. So if you are getting better, Everything else we've talked about plays into it, right? Getting ready for the games, right? You don't go to school just to get ready for the test. You go to school to learn, right? So in hockey, the games are the tests each weekend to see where you are. That's all they are, merely what they are for youth hockey. It's a simple test or a quiz on the weekend to see where you're at, right? But if you're not learning, right? If you don't go to school to learn, if you just go to school to prepare for a test, What are you going to learn? You're not actually learning. You're just going through the motions of of what you're going to do. So in order to develop our players, what are the elements that practice must include? And we've already mentioned two of them. So I'm going to go back to, uh, well, decision-making and competition. Decision-making for sure. Right. Ours is a game. I was just about to say, Greg that. Ours is a read and react game, but ours is a read and dictate game, right? So we don't call a huddle and to run run routes. We don't just run routes and, and make, you know, you go five feet, go left. You're blocking this guy. You're blocking this guy. We're we're constantly making decisions all over the ice. So why wouldn't practice be constant decision making? That's one. We're looking for five different things. Uh, Jim said competition. Uh, I mean, yeah, Jim Haverstrom said competition, Jim revac said, it's got to look like the game, right? So if you have constant decision-making and practice needs to look like the game, right? Those are two of the first five for sure. Right. Like Greg revac you know, my, my theory on full ice stuff now, like I, I don't do anything full ice anymore. Certainly don't do anything full ice scripted. I very rarely even do small ice scripted stuff because it's robotic. We're not teaching our kids to think. You know, we all ran practices back in the day. I'll be the first one to admit it. When I coached college hockey, my practices were awful. I want to throw up in my mouth when I look back at them, right? You'd go out and warm the goalies up for 20 minutes, even though they were on with, for 20 minutes prior to that with the goalie coach, right? But we ran full ice flow drills. And if you think about it, they're actually kind of useless. When, I, we, get to the, when we get to all five elements, we'll go over what a full ice flow drill would cover in those. So we got, we got constant decision-making, And we got looks like the games. Anyone else want to throw uh, something out that they think might be another element of a crucial practice?
0: Lots of repetitions.
2: Lots of repetitions. Really close, right? We, We like to call that puck touches or repetitions, but we want those repetitions to be repetitions without repetitiveness, right? So you don't want to just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. Right. So you want to you want to take a lot of shots, but it can't be the same shot all the time because every time you take a shot in in the game, it's a different shot. So there's three.
0: Intensity is what we got over here.
2: Intensity Um, sort of. Right. It should be intense. But if it's if it is intense, what do you think that is doing for the players? Is it easy on them if it's intense? No, no. Would you call it challenging if it's intense?
0: Yeah, challenging sounds like a good word.
2: So, So one of the things we need to do is also challenge our players because if we don't challenge them in practice, they're going to be bored. And once you're bored, you're not learning. And the last one, which hasn't been mentioned yet, is critical to our game, no matter what level you play. Fun. Fun, right? Our game has to be fun. Practice has to be fun. Nothing drives me crazier when I hear a coach say, well, I let them play a small area game at the end of practice, so we end it on fun. Well, what the heck are the other 50 minutes? Torture, right, a death march, right? Practice has to be fun. Fun is the key that unlocks learning in anything you do, right? Our kids need to have fun because if they don't have fun, they're not going to come back. And our number one job as youth coaches is to make sure our kids come back. If you're coaching nine, a nine-U player, your number one job is to make him a 10-U player. If you're coaching a 10-U player, your number one job is to make him an 11-U player, period. Right. And part of that is about you know the purpose of practices of getting our players better. So I'm gonna try uh, to minimize my screen a little bit here so I can go to the next slide. Right, so there's our five, five elements right there. Right? Fun, decision-making, challenging the players, looks like the game and puck touches right that's what we need to see so you know I only have a little bit of time but I just want you to think about yourselves you know what will you keep doing you know start doing quit doing or do better as a coach we need to think about those things all the time so uh,
0: I've got a question for you okay so that was your high school team um, didn't look like you were practicing the power play much how was your power play
2: our power play has been in the top five in the state over the last five years. We do no traditional power play practicing. We don't do five on four in zone. We don't do those kind of things. We show them what we want to do on the breakout on a whiteboard in the locker room. Uh, Cause we don't carry a whiteboard on the ice or I draw it on the ice for them. And we do all sorts of small area games or stations where there's odd number situations. And, that's really what we do on the power to play. I mean, you know, we can't we even let the kids decide what they want to do. Like one group, uh, I mean they had names for themselves, like one of the group that called themselves K-pop, I think. It was, a, you know, who knows why, but they they wanted to try a one-three-one. They're one. like, all right, here, here, here's the basic format of a one-three-one. But you know, it doesn't matter what you do, you got to turn a five on four into a four on three, into a three on two, into a two-on-one, and hopefully a one on O Right. When you watch NHL playoffs or, or uh, power plays right? Most power plays, what they're trying to do is, is get the puck to the net, outnumber you down low and score goals on broken plays. That's how most power play goals go in. Wayne Simmons led the league in power play goals, two straight years, the last to go back two seasons. Not one of his power play goals was more than three feet away from the net. Right? So it's, it just show goes to show you get it to the net rebounds, tips, whatever it may be. And my revelation came about six or seven years ago. I happened to be in New York during the playoffs and was watching the Rangers play the Capitals. And the Rangers went three for five on power play. You wake up, you read the paper the next morning, and you're like, holy crap, three for five, their power play was clicking. Well, here was their three power play goals. The first one, Washington tries to get it out of the zone. Keith Yandel kept it in on his backhand on a wrap, walked the line, throws it at the net, hits two different shafts, goes in. There's one for one. I think the next power play, they didn't score the next power play goal, they've got a puck down low. Brassard tries to make a pass out front, and it goes off a defenseman skating in. There's two two for three. Don't score on the other one. You're two for four. The last power play goal is a rush coming up the ice on the breakout, zone entry, and Giordano, I forget it was Giordano or someone else um, tries to make a play, goes into the corner. Giordano, being a defenseman, realizes, hey, I'm open, parks himself at the top of the crease, Broussard gets it, gives it to him, one-timer, quick one-timer on top of the crease and in. Certainly not the way you draw up anything, but that's their three power play goals, right? And the last one, if you look back to the way the game used to be played or we used to be coached, right, my dad was my coach, he would have been screaming at Giordano to get back because he was a defenseman, right? and you watch the game now, it's, it's, it's nearly positionless with the way guys are all over the ice and the way they interact and interchange. And I can't tell you how many times during the playoffs, I saw a defenseman pass to a defenseman in the offensive zone below the hash marks, right? That never would have happened 15 years ago, but it's the way the game's played. Right? Rasmus Dahlin, uh, I talked to his dad and I'm like, when did he start being a full-time defenseman? He's like when he was 17 years old, he played everything growing up. He plays goalie in floorball, ball you know, and, his, and his words is like, well, I line up at lefty. Right. Other than that, I just play hockey. So that's kind of a, a quick philosophy of, of what we look to do and, and you know, put kids in the environment just to be, to, to get better and improve and, and it works.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. I know I did. So Before we let you go, though, we'd like to remind you to please like our podcast, subscribe to it, give us a follow uh, and share this with all the hockey people in your life. We really appreciate uh, growing this community, this podcast. Um, Remember, we also have a newsletter, the Hockey IQ Newsletter as well. Really excited to continue to grow this. So please help us grow this further by liking, subscribing, following and sharing uh, with everyone. So. Appreciate you all. Take care.
2: That concludes this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here at Hockey IQ. If you haven't already, take a quick moment to hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and drop a review. If you want to be a great teammate, even recommend us to a friend. You can follow us at Hockey's Arsenal on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the website, HockeysArsenal.com, where you can subscribe to the weekly newsletter. You won't regret it. Catch a Buttes, here next week for a brand new episode.